My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. We were in competition, but the good thing about that was that it taught me to fight for myself. And the other thing is, if you run into a barrier, you go higher. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. I still remember reading Sarah Davidson's book, Loose Change, when I was living in Berkeley, California in the 1980s. It was an international bestseller, and it's about three women growing up in the 60s. It changed my life. From there, Sarah went on to write many more amazing things for magazines like Harper's and Esquire and The Atlantic. She also created two TV drama series, including Heartbeat, which was the first ensemble of women on television who had no male boss above them. Well, Sarah says she learned many of her storytelling skills from her mother, Alice. Every night before bed, Alice would tell Sarah and her sister the next installment in a serial story about a miniature girl named P. Winky Smith, who was so small she could fit in your pocket. But that doesn't mean their relationship was idyllic by any stretch. Alice was funny, and she once had dreams of being a comedic actress. But she could also be derisive and mean and stubborn. And then she developed dementia. And for Sarah, this was the first time she could truly love her mother in part because Alice had forgotten many of the things they'd fought about. I talked with Sarah about the challenges of growing up with such a complicated mother, who was known as the send-back queen, because when she went out to eat in a restaurant, she wouldn't think twice about sending back a dish if it wasn't prepared perfectly to her liking. Thank you so much, Sarah Davidson, for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves. You're so welcome. And I am so thrilled to talk to you because, first of all, I'm a huge fan of your work. And it's, you know, not that many books where you actually remember where you were sitting. In my (laughs) case, I was lying in bed for night after night in Berkeley, California, in the early 1980s, reading Loose Change. And oh my gosh, I still remember lines from it. But we are here to talk about about your, your mom, Alice. Davidson. And she sounds uh, so much like the prototypical Jewish mother, which I didn't have. And I don't even know if that kind of Jewish mother is dying out, but we can talk about that a little bit. I'm wondering if we should start with the funny clip. I think that'd be a great idea. Okay, here we go. I go to the table. There's a Jewish... Now, I learned this very quickly. Jewish couple. Under no circumstances should you ever talk to the man in the Jewish couple. He is the most marginalized and beleaguered person on earth. He is one nap away from never waking up. He has been told he's a schmuck and a moron over 3,000 times, and that's just on the way over. He doesn't know where to park. He doesn't know where to drive. He's never wearing the right pants, the right shirt. He doesn't walk. He's breathing too loud. His neck, his posture's no good. He doesn't know what he wants to eat, and if he does, he can't have that. (laughs) 
Okay. Sarge is the comedian, and he's the one who's doing this stand-up routine. And you had even sent it to me because your niece had sent it to you and said, this reminds me of her grandmother, a.k.a. your mother. I have to tell you, when my daughter, this is the third generation now, when she heard it, I told her it's an exaggeration, but there's obviously truth in it. And she came back and said, that is not an exaggeration. It is spot on. (laughs) And I think what really it nails it for me is the the criticism. You know, he's not doing this. He's doing this wrong. He's breathing too hard. And that, I think, is a quintessential element of the stereotypical Jewish mother is that nothing is ever good enough, you know, and there's they, they look for and notice the problem rather than focus on what's good. Well, let's uh, dial all the way back to uh, <laughs> how she came to be who she was. She was born where and when? She was born in Los Angeles in 1914, which is so unusual. I grew up in Los Angeles. Everybody in my school was born somewhere else, and their parents came there after the war, after the Depression. But my grandfather, who I adored, saved my life because he was the counterpoint to my mother. He thought I was perfect. Everything I did was wonderful. He had loved me unconditionally. He came to Los Angeles in 1904. He had been born in Hungary. He didn't want to go in the army and there was no work. He had been apprenticed to an upholsterer and he decided to go to New York. When he got to New York, he couldn't find a job. There were so many people and he heard there was a World's Fair in San Francisco and there would be jobs. So he took a train to San Francisco and when he got there, he found there were tons of guys who'd had the same idea and there weren't any jobs. So then he decided to go down to Los Angeles. And when he got there, there consisted of only four dirt streets. And where were the, where were the dirt streets? Downtown. And uh, I mean, there were nobody goes anymore, although they're trying Mm -hmm. to rebuild it. And he walked up and down the streets. There was a furniture store called Barker Brothers He walked in, he had a trade, he was an upholsterer, and they gave him a job, and then he sent a telegram to my grandmother, who was still on the Lower East Side of New York. She had one daughter, and he said, sell everything you've got and come to California. So your mom grew up modestly, I take it. Yes, modestly. They Mm -hmm. lived in what was then called Boyle Heights, which is now a kind of an upscale black neighborhood, but it wasn't then. And then they moved west. In LA, it was all about moving west, closer to the ocean. And uh, I was born when they lived kind of on the Wilshire-Fairfax area, which was at that time called the Borscht Belt, because there were a lot of Jewish families living there. Did she have siblings? She had an older sister. That was the drama of her childhood is, is, is her, the older sister got the best of everything and she got the hand-me-downs. And part of my whole conflict and battle with her was, you know, she was very vivacious and funny and loving at times, but she also was shrill and challenging and fiery and 
quick to anger. And when she got angry, she carried that grudge. It lasted for days. I'd come home from school and open the door with trepidation and I could just feel the anger in the air. And it would take her a while to get over it. Mm -hmm. We had a very black and white relationship. On the one Mm -hmm. hand, she was very funny and could tell a story. She had gone to UCLA and studied. She wanted to be an actress, and she was a natural actor. She loved to imitate people, and she would. She loved to make people laugh and tell stories, and that was all, you know, wonderful for me. And I, I think, I inherited a lot of that from her. That noticing of detail, observation, and then being able to reproduce it which was great as I later became a writer and a journalist. I mean, you're one of the best storytellers I know. In fact, I still remember this thing from your book, Loose Change, where you talked about noticing how a woman treated her little daughter as if she were a grown-up with great respect. And I, to this day, I think of that. I think of which is really a little bit orthogonal to what we're talking about, because it sounds like it's not how your mother treated you. But it was such a wonderful observation on your part. And it's something that I actually tried to do as I was raising my own child. So, Oh, um, my goodness. You know what? First of all, I don't remember saying anything. And it doesn't sound like anything I would have ever said. Uh, like well, you, you wrote it in a way that made an impression. So I'll, I'll, I'll dig it up. <laughs> All right. So your mom, she went to college. Yes. Uh, And where did she go and what did she study? Oh, she went to UCLA and she majored in drama and minored in English. And her dream was to be an actress and particularly a, a comic actress because the tragedy of her life, as she felt it was, was that she had been born not good looking. She had a big nose that she inherited from my grandfather and she had one of the first nose jobs and but it you mean didn't in LA or in, in LA, the world? In LA. no no and was I it mean, of anybody I know she's the only mother of anybody my age she's the only mother who had a nose job well you know my mother had one of the first nose jobs in New York well in upstate New York and they basically completely botched it they just lopped off a bunch of the cartilage and forgot to like sculpt it in any way and the poor thing what about how was your as long as we're exchanging nose job stories what, how, how was your mother's nose job well it didn't work she called the the surgeon a butcher and it had a very odd shape it was not you know later when i was in high school every you could tell nose jobs because they had they were like they curved upward you know what i mean they scooped oh, yeah. up yeah, ski, exactly. little ski jumps. Ski yes, jumps. Yep. Mm-hmm. but at it, this one went down instead of up. Anyway, she was very, always very meticulous about the way she dressed. She always looked well put together. She loved jewelry and she had a kind of a flashy style. I saw my sister yesterday and she was wearing this outrageous belt that the buckle was like a fish swimming into a trap. And she said it was our mother's. And I said, of course. <laughs> So she dressed very well. She relied on humor and she figured she would be a humorous actress because she certainly couldn't see herself Mm -hmm. as a glamorous actress. And how did she meet your, your dad? This is a wonderful story. She had a very close friend who was dating my father in L.A. 
And they met when, you know, through when sometimes they would get together, the three of them, or my mother had a date with someone else. And and then this woman whose name I can't remember, she had to go back east, as we called it then. Maybe we still do. She had to go back to New York for some family drama. And so she asked my mother, would you please take care of Marv? while I'm away, you know, he might be lonely, you know, so they started kind of a ritual every Sunday, they would go play tennis, and then she would bring him back to her home. And my grandmother was a fabulous cook, they would lay out a wonderful spread every Sunday for brunch. And she would bring him home and and for brunch. And this went on for a long time. And then they started doing other things together. And gradually, it became romantic. And he asked her to marry him. And she said, well, I have to tell Sylvia. The name just came to me. I, I, I can't do this without telling Sylvia, and I need to tell her in person. And at that time, there was, there was no – a long-distance phone call was so rare and expensive. She would have had to write a letter, and it would take time. So they decided to drive back east so they could tell Sylvia in person. And then my father could introduce my mother to his family – who were living in Syracuse, New York. So they went, they told her, I don't know how it went, but apparently it wasn't terrible because they stayed in communication afterwards. And that's how she met him and they married. And shortly after they married, shortly after I was born, he got drafted in World War II. And then of course he went overseas. And when he came back, from the war, he started a little radio repair shop. He would sell radios and fix them. And then in no time, it became a TV radio and repair shop. And of course, these days, nobody repairs that stuff. We just have to throw it out. But he had, and he named his business Marv Al Radio. His name was Marv, hers was Alice. Mm, And he ran Marv Al Radio. I like that. That's a nice story. Um, let <laughs> well, me just my mother take... <laughs> was always after him to stop going under cars. You know, he would lie on his back and he'd <laughs> slide under the car to repair the radio. Car radios became his big specialty. People would come to him to buy and then they'd have their car radios fixed. Mm-hmm. And she was always nagging him that it was a terrible profession. She didn't want him going under cars anymore. And finally, he it became antiquated after, you know, after much decades later. Mm -hmm. And he went into the business of selling funeral plots at a Jewish funeral home in in LA, Hillside Memorial Park. Uh Uh-huh. That's amazing. How did your mom feel about his career uh, transition? Well, by then, they were quite a bit older. And Mm. uh, oh, I see. It, it, I, I wasn't living at home anymore. I don't know. You know, we saw from the, from the clip you played of Sarge that they were all, you know, nothing they did was ever good enough. <laughs> and nothing I did was ever quite good enough. So that was the tradition. And, and how about, how about your sister? What was the age difference between you and your sister? My sister is four years younger and she mm. had a completely different relationship with my mother. Really? Uh, so she had a different mother. She had a different mother and a different, all through her life, a different relationship with her. To her, Alice was supportive. She built her up. She gave her confidence. She 
praised her. She she lavished attention and support on her because she identified me as the older sister that she fought against when she was growing up. So she had this rivalry with me where she was always uh, in a a situation of conflict with me and, and judging me. And, you know, but with my sister, she felt my sister was overwhelmed by me. She wasn't, she didn't do nearly as well in school. I mean, I always got straight A's and my sister got C's. And when she got reports from the teacher, the report from my teacher was always glowing. And the report for Terry was, you know, she's a very pleasant child, nothing raving about. And she once showed them to me and said to me, how do you think your sister feels about this? Of, of always being so your mother showed you these oh yes really oh yes God. so so she would downplay my achievements she would she was always after me because i was the smart one terry was the nice one terry was the good one i was the problematic one and she'd say to me once you know you get a's in school but you get f's at home and oh my gosh yeah this and is terrible. And all because she had had an older sister who she had fought with. So she she <laughs> projected that relationship onto you. Totally. But she was in the role and she felt like she had to protect her second child who right. was her from right. it's all very convoluted and messy. I have to say at one point I don't I was too young to remember. She had what was then called a nervous breakdown. She started seeing a psychiatrist and that's where she came to believe that she had projected her feelings about her sister onto me. Because the thing was if this is about a Jewish mother and it's also about my mother, the Jewish mother rules. She dominates and I didn't want to be dominated, so I would fight back. And uh, we had terrific arguments, and, you know, and my sister didn't. <laughs> so it was a completely different relationship. I rebelled. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I want to say that until the time in her later life, she developed dementia, Alzheimer's, and her whole personality changed. She became happy all the time, content with everything. You know, we used to call her the send back queen because when we went to a restaurant, there was never a time that she didn't send something back and she could return anything. Doesn't matter how long she'd had it or what the reason was, anything could be returned. So give me a a scene in a restaurant where she would Uh, just... Well, well, Every year we would go to a a place called Highland Springs. It was a little resort where families went and you had your family table and they had activities and a pool and horseback riding and everything. And you went year after year and you made friends there. But the waiters were local boys from around Highland Springs. And the unwritten rule was, you know, that you couldn't socialize with the with the help. You had to only socialize with guests. But the first thing my mother did when we checked in was find out who was her waiter this year. And she got, let's say the waiter's name was Nathan. Every time we sat down, it was Nathan, 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 Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> 
she had him running in circles and she would give an order like, you know, okay, I want my eggs over easy, nothing running. I right, not bacon. runny, over easy, not runny, bacon, not not too dark. Not burned, but, but, not but, burned, but crisp, done. Not crisp, burned. Right. If it is burned, I will send it back. And I like my toast, well done. And poor Nathan, I mean, he had sweat coming down his face when, at the end of the meal. And, and, how did funny. The fam- and how did the family react? Did the, everyone oh, that was normal. Table? You know, that was, I didn't know there was any other way to do it. Mm-hmm. In fact, to this day, I will send anything back if I don't like it. It doesn't even matter if it's there's a problem. If I don't like it, back it goes. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who are embarrassed by this. And my daughter tells me she now lives in Kansas City, and she married to a man who grew up in Kansas City, so he's Midwestern. And she said, Midwestern people never send food back. They think it would be rude. Yeah, it's some kind of thing where I I sort of get it but but I can see that it's it must be difficult to be married to right <laughs> <laughs> or to be the daughter of if you're a strong you know independent minded person and so I was in we were in competition and but the good thing about that was that it taught me to fight for myself I was not afraid of going up against authority I'd been doing it all my life And the other thing is, if you run into a barrier, you go higher. You know, Mm -hmm. like in Sarge, he asks to speak to the soup manager. (laughs) There's no soup manager. (laughs) But, you know, you always go higher. You you know, you go, if you're not getting what you want from from the salesperson, you go to the manager. And if not to the manager, to the owner. So that's another inherited thing that you just grow up thinking that's the way it is. And then are shocked to find that everybody doesn't do that. And what about your mother's temper? Do you think she, was she was there some baseline anger? For instance, she didn't. Beca- I take it she didn't become an actress. Uh, did she no, have a job? Because the the you know the war happened right after. I think she graduated in nineteen thirty nine, and there was a depression, and then the war, and it just she got a job teaching school, and then later in life she became a real estate agent. And sold houses. But she never lost. She was always telling stories, imitating people. She'd do this whole physical imitation where she'd walk like somebody did and move her head the same way. And she taught me to notice detail and Mm -hmm. to observe. Mm -hmm. And I can imitate really well. And, and, And also to see the humor in something. And she taught me how to, she was a great storyteller. She made up a, a, a running story. When she, when my sister and I went to bed, she would make up another episode of the story. And the story was about a little girl named a miniature girl who was so small she could fit in your pocket. And her name was P. Winky Smith. And every night we got another episode of P. Winky Smith. So that kind of storytelling and humor was, was, was great to have. But the other side of it was, you know, the constant she got angry quickly and she held a grudge and we'd have this screaming fights and then tearful reconciliations. It was, it was intense. And to this, you know, all through my life, I, I couldn't be around my mother without feeling I was having trouble breathing. My chest hurt. And even, you know, when I got married and 
And when I went to her house with my kids, I had that same feeling in my chest of uh, that, I, that it was just harder to breathe. And then after she became demented and she was happy and all the time and never complained. And, you know, she, we had to ultimately put her in a home for people with memory issues and they would sit together in the dining room eating and she would eat this, these slop that they bring out, <laughs> never a complaint, finished everything. Runny on eggs, plate. burnt eggs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. And she so became, what, what is, she she had no memory, so she couldn't remember anything to compare the moment with. So mm-hmm. she was happy all the time. And I told wow. someone she had acquired what the Buddhist meditators say they've acquired is this equanimity and living in the moment, you know, and they should measure the brainwaves of people with Alzheimer's with the brainwaves of Buddhists who have attained this equanimity. And I once suggested that to Oliver Sacks, you know, the great neurologist. Mm-hmm. He said, that should be done. It's very important. But, you know, also it can go another way, which is people with Alzheimer's can get very frightened and agitated very easily. Yes. And it, it sounds like she didn't. No, it went the other way. In fact, they have a name for it. It was called pleasant dementia mm-hmm. because of the, of the loss of memory. But it sounds also like when you were growing up, you yearned for the lighter Alice, the because she had that side to her, right? Yes. Well, she had the humorous, laughing, storytelling, fun-loving. She loved to entertain. She loved to cook. The other thing that was interesting to me about my mother and that culture of Jewish women there is she had a group of women that met every week to play bridge. They were her bridge group. They were, they were the girls. Even when they were in their 70s, they were the girls. And they were together every week for like 40 years, oh, wow. maybe longer. Every week and without fail. Without fail. But it was this, having this group of other women, these regulars, that I, I really think was a wonderful thing and that I wish we had something equivalent. Yeah. So she sounds like she was a very good friend to her friends and people loved her. Yes, she was. She was the life of the party. She entertained constantly. Sometimes if she would upset, she'd say, I haven't been, I'm not being invited enough places. So I have to start giving more dinners, giving more events so that, so that I can get invited more. So your father, after he died, what (laughs) did she, why is that funny? I'll tell you why it's funny. I always thought if my mother dies first, my father will be snapped up instantly. I mean, he was, he was charming. He, He was generous. He helped people. He could fix anything and he would fix things for people. And he just was, everybody loved him. He was, you know, and I just figured he'll be snapped right up. But if my, my father dies first, oh my God, who would take on my mother? Mm -hmm. Well, my father did die first. And within one week, my mother went out on a date with a man. They went square dancing. Oh, and my God. I said to her, Mom, Dad just died a week ago. And she said, I'm 78. What am I going to wait for? Your dad would have wanted me to keep dancing. <laughs> and every, she had a boyfriend, as she still called it, in her 70s and her 80s. In fact, mm-hmm. when she was in her 80s, 
If people asked how she w- how how she was doing, she said, "Wonderful. I have a boyfriend. I have all my teeth, and I'm still driving." Wow. So, at the very very end of her life, did she stop recognizing you? No. Luckily, I'm not sure she understood exactly who I was, but she un- she recognized me and my sister and our family. She was always happy to see us. So. I always said, you know, why couldn't this have happened, this change in her nature a little bit earlier? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was Mm -hmm. the time when I actually could forgive her and could see all the positive things that I had gotten from her. And I could actually, my my chest didn't hurt when I visited her. And I actually, I actually could feel love for her. And I was, it was such a relief. And I was just kind of sad that it took all her life and her, you know, before I could be comfortable and really love her. And when she died, my sister called me and said, if you want to see her, I think she's slipping. You should come right now. Because I had come on and off, but I was in Colorado. And so I, it it, in just that day, I remember it was in October, there was a big snowstorm, which is so unusual. And I was afraid the airport would close down. So I raced to the airport and I said, I'll go on anything heading west. So I got a flight to San Francisco. I spent the night in a motel and that morning, the next morning I flew to Honolulu. My sister picked me up. We went right to see her. And then she was there for maybe four or five, I was there for four or five days visiting her. Most of the time she was sleeping. But there was one day when I walked in and, and my, my sister plays guitar and she brought her guitar and we sang all the songs my mother loved. And at one time she said, when they come in to bathe her, she'll open her eyes and you can talk to her then. Because I hadn't been able to, you know, see her eye to eye and really let her know I was there. So it, they came to clean her. She opened her eyes. I went and I put my face right next to her. And I said, hi, Mom, it's Sarah. I just want you to know I'm so well. Terry's well. Our children are doing well. It's okay to let go now. We love you. And she formed her lips into a kiss, kiss like a... And then she closed her eyes, and 24 hours later, she was gone. But I was so happy that I had that kiss goodbye. What a story. And now I I wanted to, before I let you go, I want two words from you and you're a wordsmith, so you can do this. One describing your mother when she was dark and angry and judgmental and the other, the other side of her. Well, you know, I've been thinking about it and I would say a force. She was a force. Um, mm-hmm. she dominated every situation when she was happy. Everybody was happy when she was angry, everybody cowered. She was the force. Mm-hmm. And is that yeah, okay? That, or do that, I have to come up with yeah. two? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Save your words. I think that sums it up really well. A force. Well, Sarah Davidson, whom I've admired for so long, And you clearly, I mean, you clearly got your mother's gift for storytelling and your mother's sense of humor. I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure. 
Well, it's a pleasure for me. I've known and followed your work, and I'm so delighted to be on this show. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Ilana Nevins does our social media. And Claire Trageser is the show's producer. Special thanks to the comedian Sarge for permission to use his routine about the beleaguered Jewish husband. Please visit us at OurMothersOurselves.com and contribute the one word that best describes your mother to the site's mother word cloud. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Hey,